remember that we're people too. Like we clock out as well and we become a customer as well. We become just, we are the same, you know? I just don't understand if you're a parent, how can you speak to, this is a minimum wage job and most of us are students and children. Like how can you speak to someone else's child like that? Episode three, essential now, essential always. Welcome to the Six Feet Apart podcast. I am your co-host, Joelle, along with Lucy, Sandra, and Ahmed. Check out our Instagram at six underscore feet underscore apart, our Twitter at six apart. And for inquiries, email us at sixfeetapartpodcast at gmail.com. Six as in six I X. We'd like to thank all essential employees who are working currently. It takes a lot and our economies could not function without you guys. Thank you. Today's episode, we will be talking about essential employees and the value of their jobs in everyday society. Something we really want to focus on is a discussion about what makes people essential and how they've been adjusting to working during COVID-19. So we will be delving into kind of a comparison of health workers and service workers and how their experiences are different, but also the same during this pandemic. Absolutely. And I personally want to challenge the stigma against jobs that aren't deemed respectable or of great value, because in reality, the economy only works if there is diversity. Not everyone can be a doctor. Not everyone can be an engineer. Not everybody can be a pharmacist. And we absolutely need people in service jobs and manual labor, education, food delivery to keep the world moving. So I just want to start off with what really started the stigma. And a really important factor is something I got from one of my interviewees. Her name is Christina Taylor. She's worked at a service job, working at working in fast food. And this is what she had to say. It depends on the field in which you're working in, but you will always find people who are just looking for someone to take out their bad day on, even in a pandemic. <laughs> the prompt I use for her is, are all essential employees viewed equally? No. I feel the stigma of customer service really came to be because, again, a lot of people do, based on how their day went, take it out on people who they don't deem as very essential in our society. And that unknowingly reinforces the stigma by reaffirming to a person that that wants to get a customer service job that nobody should work in customer service because of the customers. So this is a really important cycle that I guess we need to break after COVID, especially during this discussion about how people are being treated and how before and after COVID-19, a lot has changed with people's stability. Um, I feel like growing up, all you hear from your parents is don't work in McDonald's. Like whatever you do, just don't end up working at McDonald's or a fast food restaurant. But I feel like right now we kind of realize that people who work in that industry are the backbone of our economy. Like maybe you don't want your daughter to grow up and be a fast food worker, but where would you be right now without the people who are delivering food, making food? Like 
some people are able to stay inside and that's great for them. But everyone who's staying inside is heavily relying on people who supply these essential services. I also asked how people who work in customer service or service-based jobs, how their pay was affected and did their pay reflect their essentialness. So I asked Christina first if her pay increased. In the beginning, like initially, no, but then they gave us compensation for working later on that we we were not aware we would receive that. So that was a nice thing. And also I got an interesting perspective from the manager of the same fast food chain. His name is Dennis Schaefer. He's been working there for three years. And this is what he had to say about the pay. Um, for working there at the time, no. But um, sometime around end of May, they came around and gave us an appreciation pay, which was just um, a uh, just how many hours we worked between when COVID had really started to impact us and to about May 24th. And they just gave us that pay of like $4 per every hour that we, or a couple dollars for every hour that we worked there from that time period. Basically, when everybody was coming back to work, because they did have a one month period where they had to let two thirds of their staff go because of COVID-19. And when when they were able to like rehire people, they started implementing the... Wait, Lucy, what did you call it? Oh, hazard pay? Yes, the hazard pay. They started implementing that. And for this particular fast food chain in New York, the the, uh, minimum wage is $13.75. And they had a hazard pay of about $4 an hour since the start of COVID. But it only lasted a month. And this is really contrasted with people who are filing for for unemployment because they can't find jobs. Right. So in the U.S. right now, unemployment benefits have been increased by $600 a week. Um, I believe it started back in March and it's supposed to end on July 31st, um, which is great. And this has like allowed the U.S. to avoid going into a deeper recession than we already are in. Um, according to an article by The Economist, in April, household incomes in America were 12% above their level a year earlier, even as joblessness reached its highest level since the Depression. And po- the poverty rate has actually fallen since the start of the year, which I think is crazy to think about because right now, I think many people would assume that we're in a much worse place with poverty and unemployment than we were when the year started. So even though lots of people are out of work right now because of these increased unemployment benefits, there's been less of a hit to the economy overall. Um, But as Joelle was talking about with the hazard pay, we haven't really compensated the people who still are expected to work, or at least we haven't compensated them appropriately. So according to an Economic Policy Institute report, Only 30% of workers who have had to work outside of their homes during this time have received some form of hazard pay. And those workers who are most concerned about increased risks to their health 
are not receiving proportional increases to their wages. So to quote the report, workers who report higher levels of concern of infecting themselves at work were no more likely to report increases in hourly wages since February compared to workers who report lower levels of concern. So I think it kind of begs the question, who are we trying to take care of in this economy? And if we're going to take care of people who have lost their jobs due to the pandemic, why are we not also taking care of the people who are providing the most essential services at this time? I definitely agree with that. And even people who work in or are not getting unemployment and who do work have sort of a misconception about what they're worth. And I just want to pull some quotes for tw- from Twitter. And someone says, I'm at Taco Bell getting minimum wage. No way in hell unemployment should be more than us. Unemployment workers should get $500 every two weeks. And then someone replied to that saying, please stop blaming unemployment workers or please stop blaming unemployment for people getting 600 a week because that is their actual calculated livable value of minimum wage. Start blaming your companies for not paying you a decent wage. I don't blame people for taking advantage of the system that takes advantage of them. And then someone also says, why are people mad that those on unemployment are making more than if they'd actually be working? Don't you see how bad minimum wage is, even if the government, who withholds every last penny, thinks you deserve more? I I think those last two comments are very true. Because like it's not it's not the people who are on unemployment, it's not necessarily their fault. Because in the beginning of COVID, like when companies were like, Oh, if you feel unsafe, just go home for a couple weeks and then that couple weeks turned into actually we don't need you guys anymore. So like a lot of people were let off because of COVID and their concerns. So again, I think it's that like the system already wasn't taking care of their employees. And now like they've like they're not giving unemployment out of the goodness of their hearts. Like they're doing it because if not, they're going to get a lot of backlash and, you know, they might be forced to close down and all of this. I think it's because like, again, it's the livable amount and people need to live regardless if they're working or not. But at the same time, people who are still working should see the same amount of, or if not more, like compensation for that work. Yeah, I definitely agree. And speaking of that, there was a slight gap where people weren't sure when they'd be going back to work. I have a quote from Christina. In the first month of it, my boss temporarily laid off like two thirds of the staff and kept like a third of it to keep running the store. So when he said temporarily, I didn't, he didn't say temporarily laid off. He was just like, you know, you're taking a leave of absence. So I assumed like I was out of a job. So I started applying to other jobs. And then he asked me to come back after I had applied for unemployment. He asked me to come back. And so it was kind of like, it was kind of a choice to stay, but then also if I had not come back, I would not have a job. She wasn't sure if she had a job there. But at the same time, when they were calling people back, there were college students who were coming home because their, their universities were closed. And then many people who were working their regular jobs pre-COVID 
were let go because of COVID and had to find jobs. So there was a lot of competition between high schoolers and college students and um, young adults, and that really impacted their mental health. I also asked both Christina and Dennis about how their employer addressed the mental health of employees other than financial support. So were they being more liberal with schedules? Were they more understanding? And for the most part, yes. And this is a quote from Dennis. They understood the impact it was having because like we said, it's like a it's a, it's a new it's a new disease. Like we don't know exactly what's going on with it. So we were learning as we were going and adapting as we were going to deal with like different like mental health aspects. There are some issues I had with it because there, mental health really wasn't addressed as heavily as it could have been. But like it was, it was like raised over like we do wellness checks and everything just to make sure like everybody's doing okay, not just physically, but also mentally. So that's also something that's been being incorporated. The The managers and the owners were very understanding, but at the same time, it was still day in and day out. You do your job. And Christina had something to say about this as well. So from a schedule standpoint, things have pretty much been kind of the same because he had more staff at this point. And then he went through a hiring period to hire even more people and people need jobs during the pandemic. So we did hire a lot more people. So from scheduling, it's mostly been up to them and a mental health perspective. Kind of still up to them for the schedules. I don't really if it's in our hands as much unless we really go and try and take off more mm-hmm. but that's so. something you have the option to do right without like worrying about if your job will still be there we have because he would never fire us for not you know t- for not being there because of our mental health he, our hours just might decrease because we're not as reliable as we once were basically the same as what it was like before COVID 19 and i also got to ask them about how much their job changed and the new procedures that they had for ensuring cleanliness within the employees and the customers. And this is what Christina had to say about it. It changed kind of from a, we had to be like, we were clean before, but like we had to step up our game. And so we, um, well, obviously we all wear masks. Like we even wear masks when we're out in lobby and of the store and everything like that. We always have them on unless we're eating and we eat in like the crew room and stuff like that. We also sanitize the bathrooms every 30 minutes as well as lobby because now we can have, uh, people dining inside currently. And we do a hand wash every 30 minutes as well and change our gloves because we, we all of our staff wears gloves, not just the people in the kitchen. Now everybody wears gloves and you can't be taking the money or like giving out the food without gloves on now. And then we do temperature checks every time um, people clock in. So that's what we've been doing. Temperature checks for yeah like the staff like every uh before um anybody can clock in for their shift they have to do a temperature check Mm -hmm. so you don't have to get tested for COVID-19 uh no we don't have to get tested I have been tested personally but we are not required to and I also I also asked them if cleanliness was being enforced within the customers and this is what Christina had to say about it 
we will tell customers they need a mask before even coming in, as well as we can only have one person in the bathroom at a time. So if we, we have cameras like near the entrance of the bathroom, we will monitor that. And if there are more than two people in the bathroom, we will tell one of them that they cannot be in there. There are also signs on the doors as well. Um, but we make sure everybody has masks on and as well as customers also take it into kind of their hands to kind of protect themselves and really tell other people you need a mask to be in here customer came in and she like her mask like slipped off her nose and like we put someone's food like on the counter and she walked by it and this customer whose food it was got so upset that she was near it with her mask like partially on that she requested new food but like she she's like you need to remake my order because this lady just walked by my food so that's like uh and for like us wearing masks into lobby and stuff like that a customer called corporate because one of our employees was leaving the store without a mask on and she called corporate to complain about them entering the lobby without a mask on so now we like it's gotten stricter just by customers kind of like they're correct though the customers are 100 right though that we should be more strict on it so it's kind of been like us being stricter and the customers like calling us out when we're not or like when like uh our employee doesn't know like the new protocol and kind of like making it so that my boss makes sure is to make an announcement to all the workers. The fast food chain has a really good environment where the customers were really checking each other and checking the employees who might not have known of the new procedures if they just started working there or if they just generally forgot. And there wasn't really any trouble with people wearing masks or coming in and out of the store with stores with masks on for their hours before they were working from 6 a.m to 12 a.m but now they've cut back by an hour to help with cleanup and to help again to establish that environment of cleanliness so something interesting i also asked is how we can help essential workers and this is what christina had to say personally for me I'm, I don't know, I'm kind of stressed because I'm doing a summer program for my college and I have to work. I work basically 40 hours a week as well. So it's been kind of hard to juggle that. And then I graduated high school uh, this year during the pandemic. So it was hard to kind of manage school and work at the same time because as the college kids came back, my uh, the scheduler kind of like forgot that like some of us, despite there being a pandemic, are still in school and still have online work to do. So I was working at the same time as I was studying for APs and having to take off to take those APs and all that stuff. What do you think would be really helpful for your job so like you're not that stressed? Remember that we're people too. Like We clock out as well and we become a customer as well. We become just, we are the same, you know? People tend to forget, especially when you're ordering from the speaker, people forget that there's an actual person on the other side of that. And they're getting angry at us and they're getting like as if we don't have feelings ourselves, like we don't have a mom and dad, like we're not someone else's child. Like some people, I just don't understand if you're a parent, how can you speak to this is a minimum wage job and most of us are students 
and children. Like, how can you speak to someone else's child like that? We're in a stressful time. So, of course, you'd be stressed. But imagine how much stress these essential employees are under now. And also, Dennis. All we're asking is just to wear a mask, honestly. It's it's just as just as simple as that. Just wear a mask. It really does help to lessen the chance of spreading it. And it may not be protecting you, but it's protecting everybody else as a whole. It's helping the community. So just wear a mask. It's, it's not that hard. Basically, just wear a mask. Just do it. It's it's really easy. And make sure it's over your nose, too, because a lot of people forget about that. Yeah, I think it's very important that, like, customers not only look out for cleanliness, but, like, also, like, be considerate of the stress level um, service employees are under. Because it's not just about, like, feeling good about working, which is important, but, like, stress can play a part in your physical health and can play a part in your like immune defense against COVID. So like for the health of everyone, just stay calm, keep it cool. For the procedures that people were facing for the employees, they got temperature checks as part of like as part of their wellness checks instead of getting tested for COVID. So this is Dennis's quote about how that works. If anybody, before anybody clocks in for their shift, we take their temperature, making sure that they aren't running a temperature. And if they are, we have them sit down for a couple of minutes just to make sure that it's not from the heat outside. And if it is the case where they do have a temperature that just won't like go down, we'll tell them to go home, which that hasn't happened yet. But we usually ask them if they're experiencing any of the signs of COVID, any like shortness of breath. Uh, we ask them if they've been diagnosed with uh, COVID by a medical provider. If in the past 14 days they've had close contact with anybody with COVID. And if they've answered yes to any of those questions, they must go to a part of the restaurant where there are no employees or customers. One of the problems with temperature checks is that it assumes that the person who has the virus is, for one, symptomatic, and second, already um, is in the phase where he has a fever or developed a fever in that case. Um, the problem with that is this virus specifically is very dangerous since it can spread asymptomatically, which means um, the person doesn't need to have symptoms to be able to spread it. Um, and so... The the ability to spread it without having symptoms basically renders the temperature checks useless. Um, well, not completely useless, but to some extent very ineffective because all it takes is just one asymptomatic person to spread it to other people since they won't have a fever. Um, and And the best way to combat this is by taking preventative measures. And the best one that's available currently that's simple but effective, which I don't understand why people have trouble with, is wearing masks. It's a it's a very simple procedure, but it's very effective. You know, studies have shown that if about eighty percent of the population um, engages in wearing masks, the spread of the disease uh, would be rendered basically very low. Um, also, wearing masks reduces eighty uh, percent of secondary transmission. So, 
and especially wearing masks is not just for the person themselves. If a person goes in and they're wearing a mask on their own, um, it, it's pretty useless because it's more uh, of you protecting the people around you and less protecting yourself. So for them to be effective to begin with, everyone needs to wear them. It's useless if one person or two people are wearing it because then you're not gaining anything out of it. Um, and I, I honestly just suggest that everyone, please just wear a mask, protect the people around you, protect the essential employees that need to go there and work every day. Um, as Cassandra said, they're under a lot of stress. So maybe uh, their immune system is affected by the stress. So when if, if and hopefully they don't um, get the virus, they could be affected very badly by this. So please just don't think about yourself. Don't think that, about, about this in a selfish way. Think about the people around you um, and try to help out as much as you can. Thank you so much, Ahmed, our resident STEM person. I wish you were talking to the president of the United States right now. But surprise, he wore a mask for the first time recently, which was That's exciting. Crazy. But yeah, I wish it wasn't a political thing. Like how how did we turn covering your face into a political statement? I don't know. So now we're going to transition into talking about healthcare frontline workers. So I got the privilege to talk to Kira Reed, uh, who is a nurse from upstate New York. And in April, back in April, when New York City was the epicenter of the disease, she made the brave decision to go work at Roosevelt Medical Center in Manhattan. And here's her talking about how she got there. So I work at a hospital in my hometown um, on a medical surgical floor. And me, along with everyone else, kept watching the news and, and living in New York State, I saw that you know our governor was kept uh, begging and, and pleading for nurses to come down to New York City and help uh, day after day after day. And it really bothered me. And, and each night I would go home and almost feel guilty that I was not having a lot of work in my hometown hospital while, you know, the nurses down in the city were struggling. Um, it's, it's only about three and a half hours from my hometown. So, um, and given that I live in New York and the need was in New York, the New York state uh, license for nursing was perfect. You know, it didn't, I didn't have to worry about my license not being good. Um, so, I asked my hospital if I could go down to New York and volunteer my time, not volunteer. I mean, as a paid position, of course, but, um, mm -hmm. take, take time away from, from my job and go down to New York to help out. And they told me that I could not because they anticipated a, a surge of sick people coming to our hospital. Um, that continued to not happen. Mm -hmm. And our census, along with hospitals all over the country, went lower and lower. Um, our, they closed our operating room for any um, elective surgeries. So those nurses came downstairs to help. Um, and I decided that I was going to go anyways, and they told me that I had to resign. So... I resigned. I, I submitted a letter of resignation and uh, took a position with a travel nursing company where I had no idea what I was walking into, where I was going, um, you know, what type of patients I was going to see. I just was told it was a COVID unit, uh, medical surgical or medical COVID unit. Um, 
so I, I went down on April 12th okay. and checked in and started the next day. I started work. There were zero patients on Monday. There were nine patients on Tuesday and 25 patients on Wednesday, just on my mm-hmm. floor. That's crazy. So it very rapidly increased in volume with COVID patients that came from a critical care facility. And so I also asked her about her experiences as a nurse before and during COVID. And this is what she had to say. Before COVID, you would, you would, uh, I would get up, go to work and even potentially meet my family out for dinner right from work in my scrubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once I got to New York, you put your scrubs on, you cover your hair you put your face mask on, you walk to work and walk and, you know, take various modes of transportation to work. Uh, wash your hands as soon as you get there, of course, take your, to have your temperature taken. And once you get to work, you're, you're putting a gown on, you're putting your respirator on, uh, a face shield and gloves and, uh, shoe covers. Mm-hmm. And then you don't go anywhere after work, you go straight, I went straight back to my hotel. I dedicated an area in my hotel that was a dirty area that I took everything off Mm -hmm. um, and got right into the shower um, and didn't touch anything until I was showered and and my clothes went into a certain bag, my shoes stayed in a certain spot. um, And then I could have dinner and and go about my life at at nine o'clock at night. But you know, it, it, I never had to do that before, before I could wash my hands before I left the hospital and then go to a baseball game or go to a restaurant or, you know, that, that was not, that's not happening now. Um, and I don't think it would matter whatever you, wherever I would work right now, you know, you would immediately go home and take your clothes off basically in the garage. You wouldn't want to track anything through your house. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I were home, that's, that's what I would, that's what I would do. Fortunately, I wasn't around my family when I took this assignment. So for mm-hmm. six weeks, I lived in a hotel. I have heard that certain certain nurses and, and providers live in a hotel, even in their hometown, mm-hmm. because they're they work on the front in the front lines in an ER, um, and they don't know what they're going to face, and they're not going to bring that home. And I thought that that is something that we don't really think about, like these people are putting their lives on the lines and then they don't get the comfort of going home to their families every night. So it must be a very draining existence for them. You don't really have that working customer service, even though you, you're you in close proximity with customers every day. So I guess they, they believe that their new procedures and like their just overall faith is really high because nobody who I interviewed or nobody who I even know who works in customer service would ever not go home. Right. Well, I think it it's kind of like we are all living in a state of denial that the people that we interact with don't have the disease. But when you're a nurse who is working in a unit where you know the person has it, like that kind of adds so much pressure. And you're like, well, I'm very at risk for having it right now. So there's no way I'm going to go back to my kids and my husband and expose him and them to it. But with customer service, you kind of have a sense of faith that the people around you don't have the disease. So then I posed this question to her. 
do you think it's more of a blessing or a curse to be deemed an essential worker at this time, and especially an essential healthcare worker? And this was her response. I consider it a blessing because I just I just feel so happy to be able to help people and have the skills to be able to help people. I think it's just I'm I've, there's a lot of pride there, you know. But at the same time. I have friends that are nurses that are exhausted and they just are worn down and uh, they're faced with things that they never thought they would ever see. Um, You know, this is in different states or different facilities. Um, You know, fortunately I, I was in a pretty good place when I was in New York, but um, you know, so I feel okay about it. I know that there are others that are so happy to be able to be working. but they're exhausted. They're, like I said, they're exhausted. And I mean, you could work every single day. I could get a job anywhere every single day fighting this right now. Specifically being in New York, it was, it was pretty heartwarming. Um, only a few times I was able to catch it, but I did hear the seven o'clock cheers out the windows. Mm-hmm. And that was just, it made you stop in your tracks and just feel grateful that you possess the skills to help others and be thanked and appreciated by New Yorkers. And I mean, I would, um, walk home from work and people would say thank you to me or clap. Um, and you know, very rarely did I get someone that, uh, I think only one time I was kind of treated rudely, but, uh, really for the most part, people are people in, especially in New York, because they were hit so, so hard, so fast that they were so grateful for any healthcare workers that came down to help their city. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were, we were treated very, very, very well. Contrasting that with working, with working in a service job, there's, there's so much competition and not enough room for people who are actually looking for jobs and who are good at their jobs. So I, especially when a lot of people were coming home and needed to find jobs right away. And a lot of people who left for that one month period never got a chance to come back. So yes, these skills are in high demand for, for um, service jobs, but there just realistically aren't enough jobs to help everyone. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to keep in mind, like before and after like how these jobs were looked at before COVID and how they're being appreciated now. Like, of course, nurses and doctors and people in the medical field are dealing with higher risks than anyone else and than ever before. But like, I mean, being on the front lines is something they've been doing and something that they haven't been appreciated for up until now. And I think like this is just a very like important time for like to reflect on what jobs are essential and like clearly these jobs are essential not just now but always. So then I talked to her about the mental health and physical health of frontline workers and how the experience was for her joining the front lines for her own personal sanity. And this is what she had to say. I met 14 nurses in New York that I'll remain friends with for the rest of my life. We, none of us ever knew each other before. We, we learned to work together 
you know, within the first few days, we, we got to know each other very well, working together every day. And we were able to give and take skills from each other, you know, that we each possessed, you know, in different levels of, of specialties um, from all, you know, from all over. So it was really nice to help a, a coworker out that didn't know about this certain skill and then they vice versa with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there are nurses and doctors that are in facilities that are still losing patients and um, it's very depressing. I uh, knew quite a few healthcare workers from a different facility that went down to New York that were in, they worked in a facility with, with um, lots of uh, dying patients, unfortunately. And it was tough. And I saw some of them just almost in tears, just, just worn emotionally, physically, uh, mentally just drained from, from day after day, you know, battling, helping to battle, COVID with a 38-year-old or a 45-year-old, you know, it, it just very sad mm-hmm. um, for them. Um, but they helped a lot of people too, so I think that that's what we that's why we do it because not everybody dies. Yeah, when I was talking to the people who worked in service jobs, it's a very very steep contrast because I I asked them why they did their jobs why why they're still doing their jobs even though the sorry what's the name for it again hazard hazard pay. Pay. yes even though the hazard pay was gone and a lot of them can't afford to not work because most of them are like using it to to help pay for college to ha- to help pay for housing to help pay for food for their families they can't afford to not do this job right and i think that is a really strong contrast with at least Kira's experience. She already had like steady employment back in upstate New York, but the reason she put herself on the front lines was more of a moral conviction that this is what she is trained to do. This is how she can help people. Um, So I think it's really important to recognize like the privilege that some people have when it comes to having so many options for what to do in your field. Whereas a lot of people, especially people our age, we only have a few options and you have to kind of take it even if it's not like, oh, I want to do this because it's a righteous thing to do. So finally, I asked her about how it was to return back to her hometown and kind of come face to face with people who are living in denial that COVID-19 is actually a thing And especially coming from her hometown where there's only been 60 cases total of COVID. And right now, I think only six people have it, which is great. Um, But she said it's definitely been a frustrating experience to see people who just don't even care and don't think it's a real thing. So this was her comment on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's, it's really uh, frustrating as a, as a, let's just say a former frontline worker, because I am surround, I I live in a town that has at this very moment, six cases. Mm -hmm. They've only had 60, I believe, total, which is fantastic. Good for us. I mean, either we did something right or it's it's country enough that it, it just didn't pass it or, you know, we didn't pass it around. Um, 
but people are so naive to the fact that this is this is real. It just has not. It just fortunately has not hit us as hard as more condensed areas. That they don't they don't think it's real. They think it's um, this. It's it's just let's move on with our lives. It didn't. You know, nobody's sick. Look at this. You know, mm-hmm. um, and it's unfortunate because then I have to point out that I I came face to face. You know, with very sick people. I watched people who couldn't breathe and had a fever of 104 degrees. And it's very frustrating for a frontliner to hear people think that it's not real or that it's not serious because they haven't seen it. It, It's, you know, I, I understand to a certain degree where they're coming from, but it's, it's very frustrating. (laughs) Yeah. I think I can definitely like feel myself getting in a bubble sometimes where I just kind of forget a pandemic is going on and it's like, Oh, I'm just living my day to day life, not leaving my house. And it's just become normal. But then as soon as you turn on the news, your eyes open and you're like, yeah, there's a whole horrible disease going on. Yes. And, you know, some people still don't believe that either because they haven't faced it. And it's unfortunately, then you hear about those cases in the news where you get a person who never believed it, didn't wear a mask, didn't do this, got sick Mm -hmm. and, and haven't forbid just, and then died, which Mm -hmm. is really a terrible, a terrible thing to happen. Uh, you know, it's how much is it going to take for that to, for, you know, how many people not believing in it? And dying, is it going to take for people to actually do what they're supposed to do? Yeah, a lot of people really don't take it seriously unless it happens to someone close to them. And especially when I was talking to Christina, she said one of her co-workers, a family member of her co-worker, died of COVID-19. And that really just like adds a shock value into, wow, it's really close to home. And there are still people who aren't taking it seriously. Yeah, I think that's like something that like that's a luxury that a lot of people can't afford, like to wait for people to care because it's hitting home now. I think it's something that like it's not going to hurt you to put on a mask. It's not going to hurt you to like social distance a little bit more. So I think like just think about like what's at stake here. Because, like, what you're doing to prevent it, it's not that much greater than what you're losing. So. Yeah, and, and I mean, if, if anyone runs into a person, and I, I feel like this is one of the more important parts, is to um, educate people who are, like, maybe ignorant on this matter. So I see a lot of people um, online when they run into people that, for example, don't social distance as much or wear masks. They instead choose to bash them. Um, I can understand some people's frustrations, but bashing people um, ends up just backfiring and making people even continue to do what they do more. Um, So I hope that everyone instead tries to have a healthy discussion with the person that's in front of them and try to um, educate them and reduce their ignorance with this matter, hopefully to change their mind and... um, or also make a mandatory face mask uh, law, which would be much easier, uh, like Quebec, and it would be very effective. 
Yeah, and I also like to point out, like, when we're talking about, like, social distancing and stuff, like, the measures for different places and different, like, provinces and states are different because of where they are and, like, how how they've, like, handled quarantine up until now. Like, even in Ottawa, like, a lot of places are open and there haven't been as many cases. So depending on where you are, I think it's important to stay, like, vigilant and aware because for different places like it is a bit more lenient so moving on like i'm glad we're able to have these conversations because it's important we point out not all frontline workers are equal even though they are facing an equal risk um it's great that we had an opportunity to talk about different sectors and what they're going through but this does go back to who on the front line, not just where on the front line workers are essential. Because as we've seen across the world, and particularly in places like Canada, like there has been federal, province, provincial, and even municipal calls for people with medical experience to step up in the fight against COVID on the front lines. And this is not just retirees or recent graduates, but also immigrant nurses and doctors whose qualifications were rejected prior and are now being recognized because of the need for people with medical experience and most notably asylum seekers and refugees who aren't like quote unquote documented in places like Canada. And as we've seen in places like Canada, um, especially Quebec, there is a considerable amount of asylum seekers on the front lines who are risking a lot more. So not just nurses in um, retirement or old age homes, but also like in hospitals and doing tasks that are unfavorable, like cleaning up and things that really do like heighten the risk to get COVID. And just a bit of background, many asylum seekers in Canada took the route from their respective countries to the United States and then took Roxham Road, which is a loophole in the rigid border laws so that they can claim asylum upon um, entry in Canada. And one thing to point out is since a lot of these people are on the front lines as asylum seekers, aren't like registered citizens, they don't get the same benefits to health care. They don't get the same benefits to emergency care. So even simple things like getting a COVID test is a hassle. And like when we're talking about how important it is to do what we can against COVID, like there definitely is a lot that the government can do to help this. Because I mean, if your frontline workers can't even get tested for COVID, like, what what can you really do? Like, from there, like, there's so much more, there's so much more that you're going to have to do to clean it up instead of preventing the spread of it in the first place. An example of this was Marceline Francois, who was a Haitian orderly, um, who, was asylum, who was an asylum seeker from Haiti who was fought against COVID on the front lines, who caught it, who caught it, who tried to get tested and was given misinformation 
And by the time they found out it was COVID, it was too late and he was too sick. So he died. And this has been a point of rallying, not just for like immigrant and refugee and asylum seeker rights groups, but also a rallying cry for um, movements like Black Lives Matter, because race does play a factor into this. A lot of like asylum seekers and refugees on the front lines are black or not white. So that already plays a factor in the way they're treated um, by their employers and also the people who they are providing care for. And like this issue has been for the most part brushed off by like government figures, but like citizenship has been proposed as a way to kind of alleviate the stress and the risk that these people are putting forth. And I know I was talking for a lot, but just, yeah, what do you guys think about this? I think it's a really important thing to highlight because like, I'm going to draw a historical comparison right now, but basically like this whole question of citizenship has like played out back when it was World War II um, and like black soldiers went to fight on behalf of the U.S. in World War II. And then when they returned from World War II, they expected their rights to be expanded as citizens because they put themselves in harm's way to fight for their nation. And I feel like in a way you can compare that to this situation because although it's not a war, this is a war against it, a disease. And by inviting or really calling on immigrants and asylum seekers to step up and help Canada fight against COVID-19, it does make sense that there should be a greater acceptance in terms of citizenship um, for these refugees and immigrants who are working on the front lines. Because if you're going to ask them to fight your own illness, why are you not going to give back to them and give them equal citizenship? But I do recognize that it is a very complicated process to get citizenship. But I think right now it is very important for the Canadian government and all governments to consider how they can give back to the people who have given them so much. I definitely agree with that, especially when you're fighting an international pandemic. You can't neglect the people who are in your country, whether they're citizens or not. Everybody needs to be treated. Everybody needs to be treated equally. And I believe once we do that, we have a chance of eradicating this. Yeah, and I think it's also important to point out because I feel like there is a misconception towards this. Like most people who are asylum seekers or refugees or immigrants, it's not that they don't apply for citizenship. It's that like upon their requests and request after request, they get denied because the immigration system is so rigid and difficult to access. Someone's calling. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's Justin Trudeau. Oh no. <laughs> Maybe he wants to be on the podcast. I would cry. I'd be <laughs> you should email him. I think we could try. Like I'd ask him, I'll ask him why he decided to grow a beard. I think it's nice to grow a beard. 
All right. So um, we've seen what it's like to be an essential employee before and during COVID-19, but will we really remember what this taught us? And I feel as though we need to remember to respect everybody who has to work now and who, who is in a service job because it is stressful to cater to the needs of your employers, the needs of your customers, and to your personal well-being. And we also need to ask, how can we help our essential employees? And we did just that. We asked uh, the people we were able to interview for this episode. Um, and here's what Kira Reed had to say. I would encourage people to listen listen to what healthcare workers have to say. They, they've seen it. They're the ones that have firsthand had to deal with you know, saving lives. And so they're the ones that know. Right. Yeah. If you're going to listen to anyone, listen to the people who were there. Yeah. This is what Dennis Schaefer had to say. Wear a mask, do your part and just stop the spread. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. It's we're all learning during this experience and we can, it's better to learn together than just to go against each other. Like we're all humans. We all make mistakes. We all learn from mistakes. Like it's a new experience for all of us. And I also talked to Christina Taylor. I would just want to say that despite the, it's like people are easing up and everything like that and starting to not care about protocol as much, but there is still an epidemic out there and people are just starting to ease up on the protocols and coming in and like trying not to wear a mask or like hanging out with their friends more so. They need to think about, you know, their grandparents even their parents just older people children like babies like how this could affect them and like the people they have at home um i think like what you guys have said um it's important to not just reflect now but like take this moment in history because it really is and like move forward because once this is all said and done like we're not going to do ourselves any any service by like going and turning back to how we used to treat frontline workers or service workers really need to like change the way we treat essential employees now and go forward with that. It's time to get rid of all those Karens yelling at the managers because do it yourself, Karen. But also my grandmother's name is Karen. So it's not it's not an attack at you, grandma. It is to the stereotype. Please wear masks, everyone as well. Yes, please wear masks. And if you can stay home, there's Uber Eats, there's Grubhub, there's Thanks to those delivery people. Yeah. Make sure to tip them well. Definitely. And make sure if you have people in your life who are essential employees, check up on them and like ask them, oh, how are you? How can I help? Mm-hmm. And also, I have a list of places where you're able to donate to organizations that help um, help essential workers. So for people who are, are immigrants or undocumented residents, there are organizations like Sanctuary DMVs GoFundMe. Immigrant Worker Safety Net Fund, and We Count Immigration Worker COVID-19 Fund. Also, 
for frontline workers, there are a whole host of organizations, including the National Domestic Workers Alliance, Coronavirus Care Fund, there is Above and Beyond Solidarity Fund, and there is a, an organization called Donate PPE. Yes, Donate <laughs> Personal Protective Equipment to Frontline Workers. And for people who work in customer service jobs and restaurants or in fast food, there is One Fair Wage Emergency Fund. And there's also the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation. I'm getting all this information because I looked up where can we donate to essential employees. More specifically, I found this from Forbes website, COVID-19 Giving Guide, How to Donate to Reach the Most Marginalized. It's always a good idea to give back to anyone who is supporting us and helping us through this really scary, hard time. Yes. And I'd also like to thank the people I interviewed. I interviewed Christina Taylor and Dennis Schaefer. Thank you. Yes. And a big thank you to Kira Reed. Thank you so much for telling us your story and just all the sacrifices you made. I'm really glad there are people like you and all people who are out on the front lines right now, whether that's in service work, healthcare work, construction, There's so many people who are doing really vital things for our economy and our society. So thank you so, so much. You got got to prepare for this. This is is my time to shine. (laughs) Okay. And if you haven't checked out our previous episodes, please make sure you do. And we'll see you on our next episode from Six Feet Apart. All right, let's stop this recording.